hello and welcome back to the Canon Things Podcast. Today we have a really good episode for you guys and I just wanted to start this thing off with uh, some updates for the channel. So we'll be throwing on some songs at first just to kind of give you guys a nice vibe as we're coming into the show. And I'm also open to suggestions on any changes that you think I should make to um, how we do things here. And I really hope you guys enjoy. I'm going to play the song at the end of the episode, so make sure to stay tuned for that. Thanks. Welcome back, everybody, to the Canon Thinks podcast. Today we have a special guest on. She has a bachelor's degree in child development. She works. She has worked for 10 years in childhood education, and she teaches night classes to adults. Her name is Megan. Tell us a little bit about your experience with children. Um, well, I've worked in a variety of settings with children. I've worked in daycares, I've worked preschools, and I've also worked with children with um, what are considered to be really difficult behaviors. Like, for example, one time when I was at work, I went and helped in a classroom, and while I was there, I was instructing a child to clean up because it was time to clean up, and the child got angry with me and walked away, and I didn't think much of it. Um, because four-year-olds walk away from their responsibilities a lot. <laughs> um, but the child came back with a string in his hand and um, lifted it over my head and attempted to strangle me. A kid tried to kill you? Yeah, a four-year-old. A four-year-old. Yeah. Wow. See? Yeah. That's crazy. Uh, so why do you like working with kids? Because that doesn't sound great. Well, I wouldn't say, I mean, I liked working with kids. I don't actually work with kids anymore. I work with their parents now. But I liked working with kids for a while because kids are so unpredictable. And a lot of times it can be scary or gross, like when they spit on you. Um, but for the most part, it's really, really funny. Kids are super weird. Okay, so why on this world would a four-year-old ch try to choke somebody like you? Um, I mean, I think it's nice that implication you have of someone like me. It, it makes it seem like I am somehow not worthy yeah, of Yeah, I mean, I think you're a pretty Thank nice you. person. <laughs> I mean, why would... That's just crazy. I mean, anybody, of course. But, of course, we all know somebody that's a little annoying that maybe a four-year-old would want to go after. But oh, you, well. you're pretty nice. I don't, I don't see the point. Thank you. A little less worthy of strangulation. Um, I mean, and obviously, like, a behavior like that is really unusual. I mean, I have been punched, bitten, spit on... Uh, kicked, all kinds of things. By kids don't really like you, do they? Um, actually, they really love me. This is just really, this is really. So it's just the bad behavior. kids. Um, I mean, it's not unusual for young children to do these things. Really? Yeah, it's it's actually pretty normal. I guess I don't spend enough time around four-year-olds. Right. I mean, the spitting is not super normal. Um, that was just one really annoying <laughs> girl. Um, anyway, but um, as far as the strangulation goes. I've thought about that a lot because it, honestly, um, and you know, this maybe isn't the right word, um, but I thought that it was really, really smart. Because um, usually when children, especially children that young, get angry, um, they usually respond instinctually. And so that's why it's common for children to punch or kick or bite. Human nature is to be violent? Yes. Um, but the thing is, is we're not violent with the intention to hurt others. We're violent with the intention to protect ourselves or often to protect others. So you think in a lot of these cases, it was the kid prote protecting himself yes. while hurting you? Yes. So the thing is, is that with children, so in this instance where I was having the boy clean up, 
For me as an adult, I don't see asking someone to clean up when it's you know the designated cleanup time as something that is considered threatening. But because children see play as basically vital to their lives, they see it a lot differently than we as adults do. So, um, you know, me asking a child to clean up might be the same as um, me asking an adult to give me all of his money. Yeah. So the threat is there. Um, and especially because this was a child that I didn't know before and I just was helping out in that classroom that day, that we didn't have an established relationship of trust. Um, now, the fact that the child went and got a string and attempted to strangle me, I would assume that this child likely has been exposed to, like, a lot of violent movies and media in the home. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be that surprised if I found out that this kid was watching a lot of rated R movies at home. Oh, I'm sure. Or scary YouTube videos. Yeah. Um, because something like that is just, I mean, I can't, it's something that would never naturally occur to a four-year-old. Their brains just aren't equipped for something that advanced. So you're saying maybe an eight-year-old might be more likely to do that than a four-year-old? An eight-year-old would be more likely, but I would think that a 12-year-old is one that could naturally think of it. Okay. But I don't even think an eight-year-old could think of it without having some exposure. I think that's why I think it's so crazy, because a four-year-old, we think of somebody being really sweet and gentle, Yeah. but to put a cord around your neck is definitely against that. I want to touch on your... So you, you brought up play. One thing that we know a lot of research on from play is through animals. Um, and I want to touch on this because there's a quote from this nature documentary that I watched that they said, pretending. so the reason that animals play is that they're pretending that there's a predator behind you or playing with a bigger animal. Um, that activates a stress feeling, and because it's, you're in a safe environment, it can help you prepare for the challenges in life. So, so play allows us to be a little bit stressed out, but in a safe environment, and that can help us be more aware of stress in our life and be able to deal with that easier. Uh -huh. So play is really important, and it's a shame that a lot of kids today with, new, with newer technologies don't play as much. We don't see kids on the street as much. So, um, I mean, play serves a very similar function for children. It's not exactly the same, but it's really similar, actually. Um, and there's a different type of play that children tend to have with females versus males, like their mother versus their father. Um, and so typically, like, the main function of play is social learning. So, um, like, children... So um, if you're familiar with, like, children who are diagnosed with autism, one of the... Uh, like one of the primary indicators that's first, well not first seen, but is seen in the preschool years is that these children tend to isolate themselves. You know, play is all is social and that's how you, you know, you learn social cues and you learn what's appropriate and what's not appropriate and you learn that, you know, hitting other people hurts them and they have pain responses also and things like that. Um, that's why it's so much more difficult for children with autism because their brains can't comprehend those messages like say children who are typically developing or don't have autism or like the play that a child has with their mother tends to be um, more gentle and it tends to be more uh, focused on like the norms of say where they live you know like their culture their society it also tends to be like more conversation and dialogue based so children with their mothers or females tend to have um, play that will develop their vocabulary more, um, where the play that they have with their fathers is more likely to induce that stress response, because um, they have a lot more rough play. I mean, because, you know, we've all seen the jokes about, like, how dads will throw their kids, like, 10 feet in the air, <laughs> um, and that is primarily where children 
um, they learn how to be independent, and that's where a lot of confidence and self-esteem comes from. So we need that balance of having both somebody who can induce that stress, but also somebody to improve our vocabulary and make us feel safe around them. Yes, and I, I just want to say that I don't necessarily think that that means that there has to be both a mother and a father. I think both of these things can be achieved by having same-sex parents. Okay. Also, um, but also I want to say that, um, I mean, studies have shown that like children who grow up without a father in the home, because that's more of the norm to grow up without a father rather than grow up without a mother, um, tend to have like lower self-esteem. Um, and it's primarily linked to the fact that these children don't have these kinds of risky play as often, especially because, I mean, being a single mom has to be incredibly challenging and generating opportunities for both risky play and social play take a lot of time. And I, I just feel like single moms don't have very much extra time. Especially when you consider that when moms think about their children, they don't want to put them in places of harm where exactly. dads don't. It's not that dads want to put their kids in places of harm, but they understand the value in being in a stressful environment or being in a place that challenges you. And when you only have one of those, I can definitely see why you wouldn't develop the stress cues that other people will, or the self-esteem. Play is something where it's a constant challenge to the brain. And there's so many aspects to play. I mean, if you watch, you know, any kid, like, play a game with another kid for even five minutes, they utilize a ton of skills. So, like, if you see two children, for example, playing, like, they're pretending that they have an ice cream shop. And, you know, they could there could just be, like, this tiny little, like, partition that's basically nothing. You know, and then one kid picks up some wood chips and it's like, here's your ice cream. But in this interaction, what we're seeing is, first, they're imagining that this tiny partition is some kind of, like, um, like counter. And then the wood chips symbolize ice cream. But usually the kids ask each other how much ice cream they want. They pretend that they have to pay for the ice cream. They um, talk about what flavor it is. And then one assumes the role of customer and one assumes the role of employee. And so within that, I mean, there is a spatial awareness because they're aware of, you know, the, spa the partition between them. They're aware of the different social roles between the employee and the customer. And they're also you know, utilizing their imagination in the sense that they are both able to pretend that something, a wood chip, is something else. So, ice cream. It's amazing how well children are able to imagine things. I mean, as adults, it's much harder to just imagine yourself in a different scenario or think outside the box, but kids just do it naturally. Well, I mean, and the thing is, is that the reason that it is easier for children is because children need to. Adults don't need to because we already understand a lot of the world around us. Children don't. Nothing makes sense to children most of the time. I mean, and that's why children constantly call things by the wrong name. <laughs> like, um, uh, my daughter really loves the song Winter Wonderland, and she likes Michael Bublé's cover of it. And so sometimes, you know, I'll uh, say to my phone, like, oh, Alexa, you know, whatever, play this song. And so the other night she wanted to listen to the song and out of nowhere she randomly like yells out, she's like, mommy, what is Michael Bublé? Because, <laughs> you know, in her head, like she doesn't understand that, you know, songs have singers. <laughs> um, I, you know, I was kind of like trying to explain to her, oh, he's a singer and he's whatever. But like, I mean, for me, I take for granted what a singer is. But for someone like her that you know, doesn't understand the difference between how she might sing songs and then, you know, there's people like Michael Boulay who get paid to sing songs. Especially with a cheeky name like that. Right. Boulay. Exactly. That sounds so weird, especially to a kid in America. Right. 
Well, and especially, I mean, she is a dual language learner, so for her, buble probably sounds like a Spanish word, so she's probably like, what? <laughs> I mean, and it's very well that she could have heard the name Michael Buble and thought that, you know, it could have been like a Spanish word, and she was asking me what it means in English, who knows? <laughs> she does that sometimes, too. <laughs> How does that trauma that you spoke about impact our worldview? Um, well, so what happens is that when people experience traumatic events, um, and they internalize it, and they say, develop PTSD, um, or, you know, they, they've, it's possible to kind of get something in between where, because not everyone develops PTSD, um, but everyone can be impacted significantly by traumatic events. Um, so what happens is that because it shuts down part of the brain, um, especially for people who do suffer from PTSD, they get put into survival mode, which then means, you know, when, when they're triggered by whatever it is that they're triggered, um, basically their brains kind of function like animals' brains. And so um, they start to kind of be scared and suspicious of everyone and everything around them. Um, and Is that why somebody might even be suspicious or have traumatic uh, memory about even a food? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean... Um, like a, a, tra- a potentially traumatic event could be if say a one-year-old was, I don't know, eating like strawberries or something and they choked on them and then their parents, you know, gave them like the Heimlich or something and manages to stop the choking. Um, I mean, even though, um, you know, before ages three, it's considered pre-memory, um, because we cannot remember those things ourselves consciously, um, kind of the more animal part of our brain does. And so, I mean, so if a child had an experience like that where they choked on their food and it really frightened them, which would be totally understandable, then for the rest of their life, they might be someone where they're really careful to really cut up their food into small pieces. Or maybe they they just really don't like strawberries. (laughs) Something like that happened to me where I used, whenever I'd get sick, I'd make myself a bowl of soup, just like anybody would in the movies, right? So I'd make ramen or I'd make chicken noodle scoop from a can. Uh And now as I'm an adult, specifically ramen, I hate it because every time I eat it, it kind of reminds me of being sick. And I don't know why. I mean, I was never really that sick when I stayed home from school and would just take the day off kind of thing. And I'd eat ramen and, or I'd have a a scratchy throat, but now I literally can't eat ramen. (laughs) See, and that wouldn't necessarily be something that would be considered a, like a traumatic event. Yeah, I wouldn't either. But it's it's a negative association. But it's it's amazing that even just that little thing of, oh, I ate ramen while I was sick, and now I can't eat ramen. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how our brain just connects those two things. Yeah, our brain is constantly trying to figure out how to protect us. And the thing is, is I think most of the time we're not grateful to our brains for that because a lot of the things that our brain tries to protect us from make sense to our brain in a very animalistic sense. Because our brain, for example, may try to be may try to protect us from some kind of random threat when we're in the middle of a bookstore and it manifests by us having a panic attack for what seems like no reason whatsoever. But maybe our brain is is sending us a warning that, hey, you're in a place with a lot of people around. <laughs> Those people could hurt you. And even though, you know, our more conscious and our rational mind might say I'm in Barnes and Noble. There's no danger here. I'm fine. Um, you know, kind of our our ancestral brain is thousands of years ago. You're hanging out with a bunch of humans. Things get gnarly. Yeah, real quick. Yeah. 
And our brain is always trying to look out for us. And so a lot of times, you know, when people start freaking out and they think that they're crazy or other people think they're crazy or overreacting, um, most likely really what's happening is they've just kind of, in, you know, maybe, maybe they had ancestors who had more negative experiences. And what's happened is they've inherited um, trauma. <laughs> and it's now manifesting in their brains as random panic attacks. Are you both. referring to genetic yeah. Uh, trauma. Yeah, it's it um, unresolved trauma. Um, it was proven. Uh, I want to say I read an article about it like eight months ago or so, um, but uh, it can be passed down. Really? Yeah. It, does that manifest into things like anxiety and depression? Yes. Okay. Absolutely, and and other things like I mean, um, I mean, I personally suspect that in my own life. So I have OCD and. Um, I was diagnosed with OCD almost four years ago, um, and I personally suspect that, I mean, and, and obviously there are other predispositions, you know, besides unresolved trauma that can lead to these things, um, but I think that my dad also has OCD, um, and I also know that my dad has a lot of unresolved trauma, and I think that it's possible that... Um, you know, in our biology's way of trying to protect uh, my dad's offspring, <laughs> um, I, you know, some of the genetic markers, I guess, were passed along to me. Oh, that's rough. Yeah. How are you supposed to know how to deal with that if you don't even know what is causing you problems, especially if you couldn't talk to your dad? Yeah. Is there any way to, or do you have to move that to or more of your own life where you can just figure out how to assess things in your own life? Well, I actually didn't even suspect that my dad had OCD until I saw him in December of, so like two months ago. Really? Yeah. I mean... What was it that made you think that he might have OCD? I told him that I have OCD and I explained my symptoms and he started relaying to me almost identical symptoms. So, you know, it made it seem very, uh, very probable. Um, and especially because... Could you, if you would, elaborate on some of those symptoms, symptoms of OCD that you and your father share? Sure. Um, and so the type of OCD, at least, I mean, that I, I know for sure I have, um, it's not OCD like as, as is typically described on TV. <laughs> um, I think that's why I wanted you to talk about it. Yeah. Because you've told me before that it's not always, at least how I perceived OCD and before is you'd flick on the light a hundred times or you'd circle around your bed. I don't know. Just random things that didn't really make sense. So I think it would be important to kind of humanize what people with OCD actually feel like. Right. I mean, and definitely there are people with OCD who have those compulsive behaviors, but that's not the experience of everyone who has OCD. So for me in particular, I don't have um, compulsive... Well, my compulsive behaviors are all mental. So no one... Like when when I've ever told someone that I have OCD, they, they're always surprised because... You know, they don't see me washing my hands three times in a row or, you know, touching my elbow four just times. Just because you don't do something doesn't mean you don't have something. Exactly. And just because it's invisible doesn't mean it's not there. And that doesn't mean it affects your everyday life. Because, yeah. like you've told me, it does. Right. So the main issue for me with the OCD is that um, my brain is frequently um, bombarded with intrusive, uh, typically really graphic and... Um, like violent images that I, and they don't feel like regular thoughts. You know, it doesn't feel like when I'm thinking about what I'm going to make for dinner or thinking about having to email someone back. It's it's more like 
someone pressed play on a movie and now it's just playing in my head against my will. That's how it feels. And a lot of times it's like, it'll be triggered by really simple, weird things. Like, you know, I might look at a pair of scissors and all of a sudden there's this weird image of like the scissors cutting off my own tongue. Do you really have those thoughts? Yes. Are they truly replaying in your head all the time? Um, it's not necessarily replaying. It's more just, it's more like I might look at something and then there'll be a random trigger thought. And it doesn't, I mean, and this is just something that my brain automatically invents. It's basically just telling me that, Hey, look, you know, there's a, a sharp object exists. A sharp object could cause danger to you in this way. And it doesn't matter that most of the images, you know, would involve me having to do it to myself. And it doesn't matter that I know I would never harm myself especially like that the images are there anyway and that is because of the ocd that sounds awful yeah i mean it's completely uncontrollable i mean the only way it can be controlled is through medication and therapy do those help you the medic yeah they do um i would say the medication helps more i mean the therapy helps with getting more to like the like the causes of you know if certain like things or people or events trigger me more but the therapy helps the actual like the images um be in my mind much less frequently okay yeah one thing i think we always forget is therapy only takes you so far and a lot of it is taking medication or doing other things in your life that you wouldn't necessarily do but in order to help with your problems you can do certain things like exercise a lot of exercise can help a lot of people Uh, I just wanted to touch on when you were saying that you would get a lot of violent or unrealistic things like cutting off your fingers with scissors or whatever. Mm -hmm. For me, as somebody with really bad anxiety, most of those replaying thoughts in my head are based in reality. And I think the difference here is that hers aren't. Because in my own experience, a lot of the anxieties that I have Either I'm having anxiety about nothing, which is really hard, and that makes it really hard to do anything. Or if they are based in something, it's like, oh, I have to pay this parking ticket next week. And that's all you can think about for a week. And you're like, dude, what are you thinking about? Like, who cares? Just be normal. And it's really hard to just, I guess, be normal. But I, I really love how in society nowadays we're accepting that and we're allowing people to tell their stories of how normal isn't necessarily what we think is normal anymore. Yeah, well, and I remember when I um, I told my mom that I was diagnosed with OCD and I was kind of explaining to her a little bit of what it's like because it's, it's difficult for me to kind of tell people some of the graphic images that come into my head because a lot of times, I mean, they're really scary sounding and it grosses people out and I get that, you know? Sure. Um, but I remember her asking me um, if she thought that maybe because I've watched so many scary movies in my life and I read so many like horror and scary books, if she thought that maybe that had impacted it. Um, and I just want to say that that has nothing to do with it at all whatsoever. Um, and uh, it, it's actually completely irrelevant. I mean, because sometimes some of the things that come into my mind, they're never, they're not things that I've seen in a movie or I've read in a book. Um, and actually sometimes um, being able to like read scary books is actually, um, it's kind of helpful for me because I can then see how, you know, characters get into, like, really scary, dangerous, and violent situations, and they find a way out. And it kind of, I think, relaxes this animal part of my brain, and I actually tend to get less violent images when I read violent images. So I know it seems counterproductive, but it works for me. 
Yeah, that sounds like in a weird way it works for you. Because yeah. for me, horror, it does the opposite and it makes me too anxious while they're in those problems. I mean, sure, I know that they're going to get out of it, but I'm also hyper analyzing the film because I have so much anxiety about their problems. Right. So I'm like, oh, why didn't they go this way or why didn't they do that? So watching a horror movie with me is the worst thing you can do. Do not watch horror movies with me. Uh, yeah, and it's interesting because it's although OCD and anxiety do share some similar traits. Um, They're in the same spectrum. Right. I mean, and people can have both OCD and anxiety, which I do have both. But the thing is, is that um, the presentation is different, you know, therefore making the solutions for them different. I think the way that both of our bodies react to these weird primal responses are probably the same. I mean, our bodies can only react the same way. Our heart will elevate or we might sweat or, but we, the way that it's actually happening to you is much different than me. Right. The way that your brain processes it, not your body. Because I think the way that our bodies tend to process things is all the same. Mm-hmm. But our brains, depending on that trauma. Let's shift gears to um, how does this unresolved and remembered trauma manifest in our lives and what can we do about it? Uh, <laughs> well. Sorry, uh, that's a really packed question. But I feel right. like it's very relevant to this parenting thing that we're talking about as well as a lot of our mental disorders and how we can manage those, especially with more and more of us realizing that, you know, everything might not be perfect. We might have problems in our lives, in our heads too. I, th- I believe, I could be wrong, but I believed it was the CDC who a couple of years back um, defined like that traumatic events for children. Like a child can develop, can experience a pot- potentially traumatic experience just by overhearing a trusted adult talk about something scary. So a child overhearing, say, someone talk about 9-11 when it happened, just overhearing and and becoming aware that, you know, such great, like, death and tragedy and things like that can happen. So um, even things that we don't... Experience We don't see, experience, we or, could feel the effects of in our trauma? Yeah, so children, like, even just hearing, you know, the story of 9-11 as a story um, can be so impactful on a child's brain that they could develop PTSD from it. That's not terribly common, um, but it's possible. But again, it's not very common, but it is possible. Just to give an example of basically how fragile our brains are. Um, So um, one of the ways that I have actually seen what what I always assume to be unresolved trauma manifest frequently when I've worked with parents is um, a lot of parents carry this belief that their children should respect them. And a lot of times they take respect, respect them not to mean love them and listen, you know, listen to what they say, but more as comply and be obedient at all times. Um, And the thing is, is that the thing that children are the absolute worst at is being obedient. (laughs) Um, and it's not because they don't want to be, it's because children aren't wired to be obedient. Children are wired to jump on beds and climb trees. Children are animals. Yeah, I mean, children are wired. I mean, there, there is an actual defined stage in child development that defines when children become obs- begin to become fascinated and enamored with poop and pee jokes. <laughs> what age is that? Three. Sounds about right. Yeah, and, I and we still laugh about those. Yeah, I mean, my daughter's in that safe right now, and I think it's hilarious. Like, it is very surreal, right? The fact that we have to go to the bathroom 
you know, however many times per day we have to take a dump at least once a day. <laughs> I mean, yeah. ideally we are, we are animals. Yeah. Like we, we have to eat, we go to the bathroom, we have to sleep. It's surreal. I mean, when, when kids realize that like, Hey, we actually, we have control over this kind of. But what happens is the reason that children usually become, they think poop and pee jokes are so funny around ages three is because that's usually the age that they, that children get potty trained. Because that's usually like the age where their pelvic muscles are developed enough where they can hold it in for longer. Um, and so because there's a sense of control, it also becomes funny. Because now they feel like they can also, um, because they can do something, they can also make jokes about it. Um, and that's something What I a human thing. I know. And that's what I love about kids is kids are best at if they can do something, it can they can laugh about it. Children are constantly trying to see what's funny about something. It's why children will frequently walk up to a group of adults that are laughing, have no idea what's going on, and also laugh. And it's amazing. So, okay. So anyway, so what I see with adults frequently is um, they want their children to, you know, sit down, be respectful, you know, eat all their vegetables, be, be all, of these, all of these specific things. Um, and so sometimes when children struggle to do those things, because all children struggle to do those things, because honestly, it's not developmentally appropriate at most ages to expect those things. Like, I mean, a lot of child development specialists, you know, will always, always, always advocate against make, you know, trying to enforce two and three year olds to share anything ever. Because it's honestly, it's not natural for them at that stage of their development to learn how to share. That sounds like a problem that we might have within our societal idea of how we should educate children, it yes. sounds like we need to give them more free will. Yes. So a lot of times, especially in families where the parents have multiple children, and especially children close in age, and this often develops sometimes because, you know, maybe a parent has, you know, there's one toy and three kids want it. You know, that's difficult. Then yes, you know, learn how to help, you know, help teach the kids how to share or take turns or things like that. Um, but a lot of times what happens is the parents will force the children to end their turn too early and then they won't get all of the what they need out of play. Um, and a lot of times then a power struggle ensues. So a child will get really angry that their parent forced them to end their game early and a parent won't necessarily comprehend how monumental that is for the child. And so the parent then in turn might get angry that their child is disobedient or that their child is naughty. And a lot of times when kids feel threatened which taking a toy away before they're ready can feel like a threat, um, they might hit their parent as a result. And this is not a sign that a child is aggressive. I mean... It sounds like a sign of our animal nature. It's a sign... I would say that for the most part, especially even with adults, I'm like, a lot of times, if we throw a punch, it's not because we're violent, it's because we feel threatened. It's not out of hatred, it's out of fear. I mean, that's not always the case. But fear leads to anger. Yes. So always. a lot of these kids get angry and then they punch. Yes, which is why then parents are so concerned that they have violent, angry children. But the thing is, is that the parents don't really realize that by, um, you know, forcing their children, by something as simple as forcing their children to end their play too early, they are unintentionally provoking a violent fear response. So, um, 
the trauma that I see with parents is they assume that because, you know, say their parents were likely very strict and maybe their parents enforced the strictness by spanking or whipping with a belt or things like that. These are all examples that parents bring up to me frequently. Um, or maybe they have the type of parent where, you know, if they didn't eat their food, then they would have to sit at the dinner table until all the food was eaten. Or one, one particular case where um, uh, the woman who told me told me that her mom... Um, her mom told her she had to eat all the food and she refused and eventually the girl ended up falling asleep at the table. She woke up at the table, the food was still in front of her and her mom made her eat it for breakfast. That does not sound like a great way to parent. No, but the thing is, is that the trauma in all of this is that, I mean, um, spanking, you know, uh, forcing, you know, forcing a child to do things like eat, um, all of these things um, present as abuse in the brain. The brain can't separate this as, like the brain can't distinguish between spanking as a punishment versus being punched as abuse. It's the same in the brain. And so a lot of the parents who grew up with this, eventually, because most of us really love our parents and most of us find it really painful to think that maybe we didn't have good parenting or didn't have good parents, Instead of questioning how we were parented, we say, oh, well, my parents spanked me and I turned out fine because we don't want to question them because we love them and we think it will hurt my parents if I question. And parenting is hard. It's very hard. Yeah. I mean, it's exhausting. It's confusing. There's a lot of poop, a lot of pee, you know, it's dirty, it's smelly, it's you're sleep deprived for years. So I want to ask you this. It sounds like this loss of freedom, like this infringement of a system on little kids could lead to a future lack of decision making within people. Does that sound right? Yes. But also, um, I think part of the reason that parents um, implement more control over their children is because parents also experience a loss of freedom when they have children. And so... Um, What's common and not necessarily wrong is that um, a lot of parents will try and establish control over their children to get them to act more efficiently and therefore try and gain back some of their control, which feels similar to freedom. Because it's very difficult to feel free and carefree and like you have freedom as a parent. Um, but also it's difficult to feel that way as a child unless a parent actively works towards helping their child feel that way. Because children typically feel carefree, but they don't typically feel in control of their own lives, which is why, you know, there's um, the problem that so many children are so excited and can't wait to grow up and make their own rules. What can parents do about this? Um, they can um, they can give their children the illusion that they have control. Um, How does that work? So what they can do when they're really little... Um, they can begin by offering their children two positive choices. So a lot of times parents do offer their kids two choices, except they offer one positive and one coercive choice. Um, and that doesn't give the child the illusion of control. In fact, um, when a parent offers a positive and a coercive, it makes the child feel less in control. So, for example, a way to offer two positive choices, it can start out as something as simple as you're helping your child get ready for school in the morning. And you pick up two shirts and you say, do you want to wear the black shirt or do you want to wear the green shirt? And you let your child decide what color of shirt they want. Allowing them to have some sort of freedom in their own life can channel that 
and let them be less wild in general? Yes, and also um, for children who are more anxious, giving them two choices um, can help them feel less overwhelmed. Because some kids, if given the choice to dress themselves, might stare at their clothes overwhelmed and not know what to pick. Or a more spirited child may, if they're not you know, guided to the two shirt choices, may choose to be naked. <laughs> Even though you might only be offering them two choices between a green or a black shirt, mm -hmm. if that child has trouble picking between the two, giving them positive feedback and saying, I really like the choice that they make, assuming that they make the choice. So like if they just decide to choose that green shirt and you say, hey, I really like your green shirt and you mean it, mm -hmm. I think that would go a long way. Yeah, I mean, and with giving them two positive choices, basically um, it's you're just giving your child two choices that you are okay with. And the best way to help your child feel empowered and feel like they're in control of their own life, and the more in control a child feels, the more actually they're going to want to do what their parent wants, the more compliant and obedient they will be because it won't feel like they're constantly trying to, you know, get their way because it'll feel like, you know, it's not mom's way or child's way. It's just what we have to do next. Well, it sounds like the child will learn to trust their parents more because exactly. the child will say, well, even though I'm not being giving the choice to what school do I go to or right. what friends can I not hang out with or whatever, being able to trust your parents that they're making the right decision through using that positive child guidance sounds like it would be very helpful for them. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of times, I mean, like any skill, this takes a lot of practice. I mean, obviously, the younger you start with your children, the better. And children aren't always going to, you know, be in the mood to respond, especially if it's for something like you're trying to get them to leave the park and you say, okay, do you want to walk to the car or do you want me to carry you? You know, those are choices that I as a parent would be okay with either. And I would assume my child would be okay with either, but in reality, she's okay with neither because she doesn't want to leave. So I think my parents right now, and a lot of parents are asking, well, what do you do if your kid says, I don't want to do either? Screw you. <laughs> um, so what you can do is you can repeat the choice a couple of times in a firm but calm voice. Make sure you always keep your voice calm because the second that you get angry, it's going gonna, it's gonna to trigger that, that fight response. And the kids are either going to get scared and try and run away from you, or they're going to want to fight you. And that might be, depending on how old they are, hit, kick, bite, yell, sometimes spit. Depends on the age. Um, so what you can do um, is if they really won't make a choice, you can tell them, like, okay, I can see that you're having a hard time making a choice. I will make the choice for you. I am going to carry you to the car. And you know what? A lot of times, you know, it won't work out where the kids happy to be carried to the car. They might, you know, kind of fight you and be screaming. But the important thing is that if you're consistently several times a day trying to give your children positive choices and trying to empower them, you're going to have less tantrums and less power struggles overall. I mean, using a method like this, you know, for parents who say their kids have like, I don't know, six or seven tantrums a day, using a method like this could probably, you know, at first reduce the tantrums to five a day and then slowly three a day, and then one a day, and then maybe one a week. I think that applies to a lot of adult life. Yes. Especially for the example that I'm thinking of, when you started a new company, obviously you're not going to be given con complete control over what you can do. But if a company says you can make these certain decisions, like I want to work on this project, I want to sit here, I want to work with these people, or whatever mild choices that might not actually impact the bottom line, mm -hmm. but can change how you feel about the situation. 
could be very powerful. Right. Or remember on Friday when we were talking about going out to lunch and we, we never really decided on where to go and we decided not to go because we couldn't choose. So imagine if, you know, instead of me saying like, oh, well, you just pick. What if I had come to you and I had said, all right, do you want to go to lunch at JCW's or do you want to go to lunch at... A burger joint? Yeah. Or like a taco joint. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, but let's say t- two. I mean, anyway, but, um, so imagine if I had given you two choices. I mean, you might have at first been like, what if I don't want either because you like to challenge me? But, but you giving me two choices allows me to research both of them and decide, well, I'd probably prefer this one out of the two. And yeah. I like this. I trust this person enough to go to them with something that they like, which is actually what we did today. So right. because we didn't choose to go to dinner on or to lunch on Friday, we decided to grab some food before filming this show. And we, I basically just told Megan, I'm like, I picked last time, so I'm going to let you choose. And whatever you choose, I'm just going to vet and make sure that there's something on there that I'd be interested in eating. And then if there is, then let's go there. If there's not, then I'll tell you and give me another option. Mm-hmm. And I think that really worked because that allowed me to, to kind of take pride in going to that restaurant because it's like, oh, I already know everything about this place, right? Even though I only checked the menu. Right. But at least it gives me some element of personal freedom because you're not telling me, all right, Canon, do you want to get tacos? Well, hold up. Who said I want tacos? <laughs> right? That's <laughs> right. The, that's the problem with whenever people complain about their significant other or their friends saying, I don't know where we want to go eat. It doesn't matter as long as you're giving them choices, like don't say, where do you want to eat? Say, do you want McDonald's or do you want Wendy's? Because right. they're probably going to choose one of those two. Right. I mean, and if they have a third option, usually that's fine. And sometimes kids will do that too. Like sometimes I'll tell my daughter, like, do you want to hold my hand when we walk to the car? Or do you want to, you know, do you want me to carry you? And sometimes she'll be like, I want to run. And I'm like, all right, sure. Run to the car. And I'm like, that's actually better than both of what I said. Yeah, sounds fun. Right. It sounds like a very active style of parenting where you're very dedicated in giving, because you're always having to think of these choices to give yeah. your daughter. And sometimes it's really difficult to think of positive. It's difficult to think of positive things because a lot of times with the positive and the coercive way would be if I said, okay, do you want to walk to the car or do you want me to, I don't know, take your toy away? Or um, something one of my friends does a lot, and she's fantastic, but um, she does a lot with her son, is if he does something mean to another child, she'd be like, okay, say sorry, or we're going home. And so it's, you know, really he doesn't have a choice, because typically he doesn't want to go home from, you know, wherever he's having fun at. And so really then he sees his only choice as saying sorry. Where with my daughter, usually what I tell her is I'll explain to her that when she hurts someone... Um, you know, that it gives them pain, they feel sad, so I'll give her the option. I'll be like, okay, do you want to tell them I'm sorry, or do you want to say, are you okay? And then she typically elects to do both. (laughs) Or, you know, I'll be like, do you want to give them a hug? Or, you know, do you want to say I'm sorry? So it sounds like by using this, I don't know what the word was for, but giving them this personal freedom to choose things in their life, it sounds like it's turning your daughter into a pretty good person, even though, how old is she? She's three. So even though she's three, the fact that she would do both in that situation shows that she cares enough. Right. And also because um, it's human nature to like to feel like we're making choices of our own free will. Yeah. And even though we often get freaked out when we think we have too much choice, which is why everyone makes the joke about never being able to pick what restaurant to eat at. Or which show to watch on Netflix. Exactly. Um, 
Which, so honestly, sometimes it's actually really calming um, for me if, you know, if someone, say, wants to have a meeting with me and then they say, okay, are you available to meet Wednesday at 12 or if they say Thursday at 12, then I'm like, fantastic. That's so much more, um, it feels so much better than when someone says like, oh, let's have a meeting. When can you meet? And I'm like, I don't yeah. You know, I'm just supposed to keep giving my kids, like, two choices. Like, I, I think some people tend to see that as, um, because really it's kind of an illusion of control. They tend to see it as more manipulative, but it's not. I mean, the thing is, is that little kids are terrible at making decisions. Well, and in the long <laughs> run, it sounds like if your daughter is able to make those choices now and have that ability, to, you're giving her the ability to choose, she's going to have a heck of a lot time, easier time in her old, adult life to choose what she w actually wants to do with her life. Right. I mean, and I mean, ultimately for the rest of her life, she's going to, you know, every day she's going to choose between, uh, you know, she's going to start a day choosing between a black shirt or a green shirt. You know, I mean, every day we always pick what we're going to wear. So yeah. I'm like, I mean, these skills are fundamental and it is more calming for the brain to kind of be like, all right, I'm going to narrow it down real quick. And then, Hey, yeah. Pick between two things. Instead of constantly being like, I don't know, I could have 50. So, Megan, it kind of sounds to me like parenting is hard and overrated. Because all you hear is how great parenting is and how rewarding it is. But let's be real. you got to stay up all night. you got to, <laughs> you don't get to do whatever you want anymore. I mean, you're talking about that choice of personal freedom. Well, you're kind of just choosing what your kid's going to do, but you never really yeah. get to do your own stuff. I, I think both is right. I mean... Both with parenting being rewarding, but also parenting being really difficult and overrated. Um, I, I feel like at least a lot of the messages I've gotten growing up is, is just, they've always been highly focused on the joy of child rearing or, you know, the joy of being a mother or things like that. Um, and that's a lot of what I see perpetuated in like Facebook and Instagram posts. Or even sometimes I've read blog posts and it'll get like real dark at the end where, um, the mom will write something like, yeah, and sometimes I think about walking away from my from my kids and my whole life, and then she'll end it with, but it will all be worth it in the end. And it... <laughs> Where they write like a big paragraph talking about how rewarding and amazing parenting is, and then there's this little excerpt of, man, if I could just leave, I would totally do it. <laughs> yeah, but then ends it with, but it's all worth it in the end, and it's so confusing to me. And the thing is, is that I'm like, and I'm like, why is she using that phrase? I'm like, in what end, you know? Because yeah. I'm like, clearly, I'm like, so she has problems. <laughs> yeah. But also from that, what I, what I'm getting is that, I mean, one saying it's worth it in the end. I mean, that's 100% an aphorism. I'm like, and like all aphorisms, it's just meaningless nonsense that people repeat. Um, it's all can worth... you tell us the definition of that, please? Yeah. An aphorism is just a phrase that people use. It's all worth it in the end or. Um... So people just say it for the sake of saying, Yeah. because and everyone it, and, says it. And and everyone thinks they know what it means, but honestly has no meaning. Like you most... need to go deeper than that. Okay, I'm trying to think of more common phrases that people use besides that one. That's just how the cookie crumbles. Yes. I actually love that one, though. Okay, well, actually, that, I mean, that's, yeah, that's kind of an aphorism. It's, that falls somewhere between an aphorism and an idiom. But, um, or things like, uh, don't make a mountain out of a molehill, or... Um... The Eiffel Tower wasn't built in a day. No. What? Isn't it Rome? Rome, Rome wasn't, wasn't built, built in a day. day. Yes. And honestly, it's like, what? what does that mean? And how many days was Rome built? Right. And it's like, I mean, I, I guess I'm... I'm sure that Rome was built when they decided to name it Rome. I mean, <laughs> and also I'm like, I guess I'm supposed to assume from that that 
Rome is incredible, but I mean, but why are we comparing Rome to to like something in real like, life or like writing a book? I'm like, why would I compare well, you know that, a city? You to know that a when book? somebody came up with that saying, Rome wasn't built in day. Uh huh. I hate phrases like that because they make no sense. And the thing is, is that I think sometimes people use those phrases because they're trying to comfort themselves or because they don't want to think more deeply about, you know, the fact that they've had four kids and they're 26 years old and they're actually a little bit miserable and they don't really know what to do. So um, I think that being a parent is extremely difficult and there are a lot of times where I honestly do think I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the worst mistake I've ever made. <laughs> I probably shouldn't have become a parent. Um, and... There yeah, but are... you can't say that. Well, I am saying it, and I feel like people should be more open about saying it because it is really difficult, and sometimes being a parent can be really lonely and really isolating and really painful. And even though I know my husband feels the same way a lot of the time, it doesn't necessarily make it less lonely and less painful. Um, but the thing is, is that even though I sometimes feel this way, and I would guarantee, like, I can bet that every single parent has felt this way, um... There are also times where I, <laughs> I'm i with my daughter and she does something like asks me if she can be my heart. Um, <laughs> or she draws a chicken, she colors in a chicken and draws poop on it, you know, draws poop <laughs> between its legs. And, and I just, I feel so... Um, Sounds like it brings it back to earth, kind of. Well, and I feel like so immensely full of joy. In a way that nothing else makes me feel like. It's just, I just feel like, and in that moment, it's not like I'm feeling like, oh, it's worth it. It's it's something separate and something even better. Do you think and, that parents will have that when their teenagers go through, like, the rebellious years or when their college-age students start not talking to them as much? Like, the immense joy? Yeah, like, that the feeling. I mean, I could totally see that with a three-year-old mm-hmm. or an eight-year-old even. And maybe like when they start getting into high school, I could see it. But once they're once they don't like you anymore, I don't know. It just seems like it would be much harder to think that way. Well, the thing about three year olds is that um, they spend a lot of time not liking you, but they also spend a lot of time loving you. So they might really, really hate you passionately for like three minutes at a time, and then love you desperately thirty seconds later. <laughs> um, so <laughs> pretty much at every point of their life except for maybe their first year of life um children will always like you and dislike you i mean obviously you know with three-year-olds it's in like three minute intervals but for teenagers it's probably more like three month intervals um but the thing is is that um what's really special about being a parent is um at least for me is that i have had the experience to feel pride and joy and euphoria for someone's accomplishments in a way that I never have before. And also, I mean, man, like, um, <laughs> I never really thought that I would feel euphoria at just seeing my child being able to roll over, you know? Or to roll like, over? Yeah. Hmm. Like, just roll over, like, you know, a little, little tiny potato. So I guess this, this is the part where people attach themselves to parenting so much where they really find the value and the the fulfillment that parenting brings is in stuff like this well and like being a parent can also be incredibly boring i like i will be very it can be really boring um but also i mean boring yeah 
It can be really boring. I just, you know, I don't like going to the park very much. I don't I mean, think playgrounds are very fun. <laughs> Why do parents or adults or teachers encourage children to be nice and or good? What exactly are they looking for? Like, what makes a good kid? Well, um, I don't think... Okay, I don't believe or, I guess, ascribe to the idea that people are good or bad. Um, I think that things are good and things are bad. Or food can be good or food can be bad. But I don't think it's a term that makes sense to apply to people. So you don't think Hitler's bad? I think that Hitler was someone who did a lot of evil things. Um, but that doesn't make him bad? I just don't think bad is not a word for people. I think Hitler's evil. But bad's just not a word for people. So what would be something you describe bad as? Um, I could say this food is bad. Look how rotten it is. That's a good point. I mean, <laughs> leaving a one-star review would be bad. Yeah, like I mean... saying something is bad. I think that actions can be bad. Like, I think that it is bad to... Um, shoplift pistachios but oh definitely that's a bad thing <laughs> um but i just don't think that it's fair i also i mean i don't think it's fair to describe people as things as broad as good or bad i mean people make good and bad decisions all the time yeah you know i mean and especially i'm like are we really going to describe a child as bad because he got angry and hit another you know he hit his brother when say that same child also hugged his brother that day. Well, that's why I think, think things like cancel culture are so bad because it doesn't allow for people to change their opinions and to do good things in the future. Mm -hmm. It basically just says, nope, you're done. Well, right. people aren't like, I mean, you could say that about a, a type of water bottle, right? If it has a hole in it, you're like, nope, you're bad, throw away. Mm -hmm. Because you can't really fix a water bottle. But right. you could you could get a new water bottle. You can't get a new person. You can, And you can always, always fix a person. A lot of times that parents will tell their kids to do things like be nice or be good or be whatever is one, it's a little bit lazy and they're not really thinking about it. Um, I think sometimes they might say that because they want their children to make good decisions and they might feel obligated to remind their children to be nice because they know that that's, they want to, they want to be described as having nice children or good children. But really, I mean, when you tell a child to be nice, most of the time the kid's like, okay, but what am I supposed to do? Well, I think that comes down to the philosophical subjectivity of every decision that we make in this world. Yes. Because maybe stealing something at one experience or one time is wrong, mm -hmm. but at another time, maybe stealing is right. Like the whole thing with stealing a loaf of bread for your family. Well, why, why is stealing so bad that you can't steal for your family? Because yeah. clearly, clearly we are showing the fact that that's even a question shows that family is more important than stealing. Right, or it's it's also based on context. So, for example, if I were to tell my daughter to be nice, and maybe for her the first thing that pops into her brain is, oh, you know what's nice? Kissing people. And then she goes up and kisses a kid on the face, and the kid's like, uh, and hates it. But you know what is nice? A nice high-five. She could learn how to high-five everybody. Well, sure, but then what if, you know, she high-fives a kid, and then she high-fives him too hard and hurts his hand? You know, so here's the thing, is that, like, um... It's subjective. And so I think that she's trying to be nice. And the child, you know, she thinks she's trying to be nice. But a lot of times, like, what comes across as the nice gesture doesn't always work out. And so when parents tell their children to be nice, their kids don't know what to do. Where instead, it would be more effective if, you know, their child, I don't know, was yelling at another child. If they instead instructed their child to say things like, I don't want to do that, or I don't like that game, or don't hit me. And we're then very specific about how to make 
something stop, you know, that's more constructive than screaming or more constructive than hitting. Just telling your kid to be nice as a way to try and get them to not hit, it doesn't help and it doesn't teach them anything. And really, well, I mean... And it doesn't teach people like me who was taught that hitting is always wrong, where there could definitely be a circumstance in my life where I might need to hit somebody. Children don't know what to say. Like, they don't know how to express what they want or don't want because, I mean, they're learning how to speak. And they're, I mean... If they have to learn the word for, you know, random things like lamp, you know, they're not going to be great at saying, I don't like when we play the pushing game. So when parents, you know, so kids might react by, if someone's trying to play a fun game with them, say like tag, you know, they might react and like smack another kid in the face as a response because they don't like tag because tag freaks them out. And then their parent might react to the child by yelling at them and telling them to be nice. And then the child's in the same position because first they were, you know, someone tagged them and they thought it was scary. And then they thought that they were defending themselves by smacking the kid who tagged them. And then they get punished because their parents screaming at them to be nice. And the child then has been scared and punished and has not learned a skill. So then a better approach would be, you know, if a child in response to being tagged hits the other child, the parent should instruct their child and say something like, if you don't want to play this game, tell the other child, I don't like that game, you know, or tell them I'm not going to play and instruct the child to walk away. Empower so that's, them. that sounds like adults trying to use logic to triumph emotion, because even with kids, we use our emotion because we don't really have the words to communicate. We also don't understand the necessity for having logic in human society. Yes. How can we better get kids to be more logical to help our society versus being so emotional? Or how can we have adults be less emotional? Well, all self-regulation is about channeling, is basically channeling your emotions so that it's constructive. So no one can really control how they feel. I mean, because emotions are basically they're as instant as a sneeze. Like they're that overpowering. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there may be an instant where something or someone really scares me. And I'm just going to feel scared. But um, I can choose how I'm going to respond. Or I can feel really angry. But that doesn't mean that, you know, I am then powerless um, in being able to hit someone or not. Children, so, and children aren't powerless either. The reason that children hit more than adults tend to is because children have less experience in life. They don't know how to react to a situation. Yes, and most experiences are brand new. And a lot of times experiences feel brand new in our brains if we haven't experienced them thousands of times. I mean, it takes a child 500 times to hear a word before they can use it in context. So maybe logic in this case isn't even the best result. It's just how we know how to behave to a certain input is our output. So a lot of times it's not that children, they don't need a logical explanation because a lot of times kids don't see things logically because they can't. Um, Most adults don't even see things logically. Right, exactly. And I mean, and logic also can be subjective. So what children need is they need instruction. And they just, they need to be told in a lot of situations exactly how to handle it. And a lot of times they need to be told this over and over again. It takes a thousand times in context for a child to learn a new skill. No, 2,000 times, sorry. 2,000 times in context. So if you tell your child, you know, to say, I don't like this game, 2,000 times, you know, instead of hitting, then after the 2,000th time, they should have it mastered. They're just going to be like, I don't like this game. 
Yeah. That's it. Yeah, and, and they won't need the reminder. And sometimes it happens before you tell them 2,000 times, and sometimes it doesn't. It depends on the skill, depends on your kid, depends on the context, which is why um, a lot of children struggle with hitting and kicking for lots of years of their life. And well, I mean, then, it even takes me as an adult multiple times to learn a basic thing. Like, I'll be doing something on a computer new for work, and I'll have somebody show me, and then I'll be like, man, I totally forgot whatever they just showed yeah. me. And then... I'll watch a YouTube video, figure it out, I'll do it, and then two months later I need to do it again, boom, it's gone. Yeah, or, I mean, a lot of adults even struggle, you know, to uh, keep their temper in check and things like that, and it's because they never learned these self-regulatory behaviors as children, and they just, they didn't learn it growing up, and sometimes adults think that they're able to regulate their emotions because, you know, say they get super angry, and as a result, they, I don't know, they leave the room you know, and they go somewhere else. And they think that what they're doing is regulating their emotions. But they're not actually. I mean, because with children, when they get angry or upset, we don't let them leave. <laughs> we, you know, we make them sit and talk about their emotions then, and we make them process it then. Um, I mean, adults assume that they're good at handling their emotions, but actually they just have more freedom to process them on their own time. And so, I mean, adults struggle a lot with, like, violent behavior, um, they're just, honestly, they're just two-year-olds. Like, they're, they're, they or probably... chimps. Yeah, well, they have the emotional capacity of a two-year-old. I mean, and they don't know how to say, it makes me angry when you do this, instead of communicating that with, say, their fist. Well, I, I do think that there is value in taking a, a separation, going away from somebody you're arguing with or whatnot, and reassessing your emotion and trying to yeah. calm down. But I definitely, and being able to reflect on that, but of course you need to talk and just lay it all out there. Tell people how you feel because you're never really going to be happy if you just let things build up forever and then you don't tell anybody. Right. Whenever you let things, whenever I let things build up specifically, I'm going to use myself here. Building things up just isn't healthy. It doesn't help. It does help for a minute, but eventually you're going to be like, man, I could have done so much better on this topic if I would have just told them how I was feeling. Well, and a lot of times when people tend to build things up, I mean, that could be a response to, you know, if you were a child, if your parents forced you to say sorry to people, which is very, very common. Um, I mean, if they force you to say sorry to someone, but you didn't feel sorry, and, you know, maybe they didn't, they didn't really explain it, or you didn't really understand why you were saying sorry. I mean, you know, that definitely manifests into adults who now bottle things up and say sorry without understanding why they're Without sorry. truly meaning it. Yeah. Because, Without enough introspection. Yeah, exactly. Because the thing is, is that, you know, in the time when 90% of their personality was developing, you know, before age five, their parents were forcing them to do this way without actually explaining, you know, why they were sorry, you know, or why it matters, or having the child reflect on the pain they caused the other person. And so then adults grow up and they don't know how to reflect on the pain of other people because... They weren't required to. So can we do anything about getting over what our parents messed us up about? <laughs> well, because basically what you're telling me, what I'm hearing it as, is that 90% of my life, 90% of who I am, was formed by choices that I had no control over. Yeah. And that I am simply reacting to how I felt those choices hit me, and based on my genetics as well. What can we do? Can you give us like just a short thesis to summarize this whole thing <laughs> sure. for us 
First of all, I don't think it's fair to say how our parents messed us up. I mean, there are some parents, yes, who have done really awful things to their kids and really messed them up. But I think for the most part, most parents, you know, try and do right by their kids. And they try really hard to do really good things for them. So the main thing is that, yes, lots of the personality develops. um, But the thing is, is that the personality is honestly kind of broad and vague. So like, you know, this could be introverted versus extroverted develops in that time. Um, and you know, this could be, um, you know, whether you are more of a, a huggy, touchy, feely type of person or not, or maybe you're someone who, you know, um, cries more openly than someone, you know, or more excited. Our various quirks. Yeah. Like, you know, and so the thing is, is that, um, I, I really think that the best way is to one really just try and be really like figure out exactly what your personality is and be more aware of it and also just ultimately like be okay with it <laughs> I mean because really I'm like there's no wrong type of personality um, and yeah sometimes people have mental illness like me um, or you know they may have things you know certain tendencies um, that can be dangerous or harmful for themselves or others but that that doesn't that's not necessarily part of a personality. Um, we can figure out ourselves and we can figure out how to be as happy as we can and be ourselves in this world. Right. I mean, and also there actually are genetic predispositions to um, like how like people's happiness levels. So some people are genetically predisposed to feel more happy than others. Really? Yeah. Is that depression to not have that feeling? Um, or is that I mean, something else? So depression depression is actually different because depression is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain, which it's where your brain just doesn't produce serotonin. Um, and so that would that that would that would be something separate. So um, So there are people who legitimately just don't get as happy about stuff as us and they're yeah. not depressed. It's just that's just one of our personality quirks. Some people get really happy, some people don't. And yeah. some people are in the middle. Yeah. Some people experience um, like more intense feelings of happiness than other people. I mean, and that applies to other emotions as well. seems like with social media as well, we all try to portray ourselves as being this really happy person. In reality, I think a lot of us are much more sad than we actually pretend to be. And that's okay, because I think most humans for most human history haven't been exactly super happy. Well, and I think um, the thing about social media is, is I have seen people um, try really hard to kind of give more of a real glimpse into their lives you know, be honest about like, you know, the difficult and the scary and the sad things that have happened with them. But I think because it's just such a short glimpse into people's lives, um, it's really difficult to comprehend exactly how much, you know, sadness or grief can really envelop someone's life. And so I don't think it's social media that's the problem. I think it's just sometimes emotions can be so complex and intense that, you know, anytime you're just getting like, a four-sentence um, view into someone's life, it's mm-hmm. just never going to be complete enough. <laughs> this is episode two of the Canon mm-hmm. Think Show with Megan Joaquin. Did I say that right? Joaquin. Joaquin. Okay. It's well, <laughs> um, and I appreciate all of you guys who are listening to this. This is one of the things I always wanted to do, and I'm having a lot of fun doing it. Um, please check out my Spotify and my YouTube page, which is about to go online after this recording. And I'm also looking for suggestions of who else I should put on the show. So if you want to be on, please shoot me an email.